Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, brought to you by Generation to Generation, where you'll be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. If you've been inspired by the guests that we've had on the podcast, please like, subscribe, comment, hit notification bells, whatever you can do on the platforms that you're listening on, so that more people have the opportunity of hearing these and engaging in our community. Hello, everyone. This is Andrew and Daphne. Our guest today is Nick Toomey. Nick, for people that don't know who you are, could you just say a bit about where you're from and what you do? Yes. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Andrew. Uh, yeah, my name is Nick Toomey. I live in uh, the United States in uh, Michigan, up in the northern part where it's cold and snowy. I have been involved in ministry my whole adult life. I've pastored a couple of large churches over the years and then uh, about six years ago, well, longer than that, I, I became involved with a global disciple-making movement called Big Life. So um, I'm married, have uh, a wife of 43 years, can't believe I'm saying that, 43 years, and we have two grown children and six grandchildren. Wow. Well, congratulations on those. I mean, finding people that have been married for so long these days can be quite difficult. Well, I think I think the secret is we fell in love during our college years on a foreign study in London, England. Ah, well, that, that was the look. That was the location of the first kiss, London, England. That's the trick. See, so if you want a yeah. long and happy marriage, that's it. Go to London. <laughs> is there a memorial? Can we go and visit it? <laughs> I don't know. We were we were college kids. We rent. I don't even know where the what neighborhood we were in. It was some rented <laughs> house, but yeah. And then, um, how long were you a pastor for? So I started nineteen eighty one, and in in two thousand and sixteen, um, to back up a little bit, in nineteen ninety eight, uh, I left what was the probably the largest church in Traverse City, and started a non denominational. Uh, evangelical church that then grew and became probably the largest church in the northern part of the state but in 2016 and there's more to this story um, we felt led by God to give the entire ministry away so we were on a 40 acre campus multi-million dollar state-of-the-art facility we probably had 27 people on staff so it was a large sort of flagship church in our area and we gave the entire ministry away. So starting in 2016, I began working full-time with this global disciple-making movement called Big Life. I met the guys from Big Life in 2008. And then I went on a trip and I saw what they were doing, which by the way, because of the radical you know, podcast here, what they were doing was it seems radical to us, but what they were doing is much more like what you read about in scripture. And yeah. and when I got back, I, I tell people, I couldn't unsee what I saw. I saw something, like I felt like I stepped into the book of Acts in the New Testament. Uh, maybe we could talk about the big life stuff um, in a minute. What was it that prompted you to feel like you needed to leave the church to give it up? In in 2014, I remember it was August. It was a beautiful summer day. I walked out, out of the, the building um, 
our campus was, it was an old cherry orchard once upon a time. And so we, it's up on a hill, beautiful kind of country vistas. And, and I'd paused for just a moment. And for some odd reason, this conversation between God and me ensued. And what, what came in, into my head was, was this question, Nick, how are you doing with the Great Commission? And for the listeners who don't know what that is, this was Jesus. It's kind of like his last will and testament, if you will. When he said to his disciples very specific things, first of all, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, if you'd like, let that dance around in your head. All the authority that exists in the entire universe, Jesus says, it belongs to me. And then he says, go, therefore. That's the first command is to go. Go to all the nations and make disciples and then baptize these new disciples and then teach them to obey. Obey what? To go, make disciples, you know, kind of rinse and repeat. So I'm standing there with this multi-million dollar facility, programs for everybody. And I had to stand kind of in the mirror of my life and respond to God because I knew that when it came to making disciples— who then made disciples, who made disciples, which is what you see in the book of Acts, I had utterly failed. And I, in fact, I was so deeply convicted. I've got tears streaming down my, my cheeks. And it was some weeks later that I stood on stage at the church that I founded and repented. And I didn't repent because I had done anything illegal, immoral, or unethical. But I would say I was plenty guilty of imprudence. In other words, we were doing a lot of good things, but the good things were undercutting the one thing. Because in this conversation, I felt like God said, you know, Nick, I never said to you, go out into all the world and build multi-million dollar world-class facilities. I never told you to go and create programs, specialized ministries for every everything under the sun. Not that those things were inherently bad, but it's just, it's not what Jesus told us to do. So it, when I got involved and, and, I, and I went abroad and I saw how people were impacting their culture, making disciples who made disciples using very, very simple rhythms. And I was the guy, I've got my bachelor's degree, I've got my master's degree, I've got my doctorate, I've got all kinds of certifications and was utterly failing at the one thing Jesus told me to do. So in terms of your question, why did you walk away from the, I didn't walk away because I was mad at anybody. I didn't walk away because there was a scandal. I walked away because all I've ever really wanted to do was to help lost, broken, messed up people like me experience the transforming love of Jesus. That's it. That's, that's, that's really what has motivated me. And I came to understand that the way we were, I would say, quote unquote, doing church in America. And, and, and I mean, it doesn't matter if it's Protestant, Catholic, evangelical, liturgical, they were all run much more like businesses. And so then you had a few guys like me up on stage uh, and other specialized staff members, and you had a ton of people who would come and cheer us on. And we had created exactly what I didn't want, which was a consumer culture. Somebody once said 
the American church is similar to a, an American, we'll say American football or the hand, hand egg, hand egg. <laughs> <laughs> where you've got, you've got 22 players on the field in desperate need of rest being watched by 80,000 people in desperate need of exercise. Um, it's kind of funny if not, if not so tragic, but um, anyway, I, because I've, I, I just want to impact the world as best as one person can, I realized there were inherent limitations in, in the institutional church, if you want to call it that. And that when you decentralized, when you, when you empower regular people so they know how to reach and disciple their own people, there's, there's no boundaries. There's, there's no limitations. So at the end of the day, I walked away from the big institutional church in pursuit, full pursuit of the Great Commission of going, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey. You know, we are meeting more and more pastors who are facing this challenge and saying, where do we go from here? This this isn't working. We, we know one pastor who... Uh, one pastor of a mega church who has already given it all up, given up the building, etc. We know another one who says, I, I, I can't do this anymore. So it is something I think that is very much coming to the forefront um, in such a time as this to pastors and leaders. Um, I'd like to just go a bit further on this disciple making. It's sometimes I think the church gets into some very colloquial words. And when we stop and say, wait a minute, what does that look like? There, there is no answer. But bef- I'm, I'm going to ask you that in a minute, but I just want to tell you something that happens to us. When we're speaking um, to pastors and we will say to them, we do not believe in making disciples. And you can feel the shockwave go through the room, everybody's looking. I say, no, we don't believe in making disciples. We believe in making disciples who make disciples. And and I think it has become a bit of a phrase, we make disciples, but forget it has to be this ongoing disciples who make disciples who make disciples, which is what you're talking about. So can you unpack for me, what does disciple making or what not, what could it look like in your experience? Yeah, great question. Thanks for asking that. And I think one way to answer that very briefly is to start with what it isn't. Because disciple making or discipleship, uh, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in America, it tends to be a program. Yeah, It's a Bible study. It could be a staff member. Here's the pastor of discipleship or whatever. That's not what we're talking about. No. We're talking about a lifestyle. And so when we, and by the way, I'll give you some hand motions because this is what we do. Our our training is so ridiculously simple that seven-year-olds can learn this and pass this on to their seven-year-old friends and on and on it goes. So in the West, discipleship, disciple-making tends to be content, more Bible knowledge, more Bible. It's it's all knowledge-based. Not that knowledge is a bad thing, but you have to be careful because the Bible itself says that knowledge puffs up. It can make you very proud and haughty. Um, So we talk about a disciple is somebody who hears from God 
And that can happen through scripture. It can happen through nature. It can happen through other believers. But we hear, and then I don't know if you can see this, but we put our hand over our heart because we, we hear from God, then we obey. And the connection here is that our obedience is tied to love. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That, by the way, can feel kind of heavy handed, like, if you love me, you will. No, no, no. It, it's like when I fell in love with my wife in London, after that first kiss, and I knew this is the one, I'm running through the streets of London. She had her birthday over there to buy her a cake, to buy her roses. I, I, I couldn't do enough because of this, because of love. So Jesus said, yeah, when you love me, you'll obey my commands and it, and it will be a delight. So here's how we define a disciple. A disciple is somebody who hears from God. Because we love him, we will obey him. And then we share what we learn with others. There are places in the world, I can promise you, I can go into jungle areas in some places and walk in as a, as a white American male and go, and they'll go big life. Or that they'll know that I'm part of some kind of disciple-making movement. So that's how we define a disciple. It's somebody who hears from God in the normal rhythms of life. Washing your car, going to the grocery store, you know, whatever you're doing, when you hear that whisper from God, you obey him because he's king. You don't negotiate with the king. You don't try to cut deals with the king. You obey from a place of love, and then you share what you learn, the victories and, and the defeats. You share what you learn with others. So we would say discipleship is a lifestyle, and we pass that on to others. We hear, we obey, and we share. I mean, we, to we totally, totally agree. Where I see this sometimes coming unstuck, at the first post, people stop because they do not believe they can hear from God. They're not secure in hearing from God. They, The hearing from God has gone so wrong that often, I think, in our experience, that is the sticking point before you even get to point two. Once you hear, the rest yeah can flow. Yep. So do you find that so? Yeah. And I, I think, I think part of the problem of sort of persuading people that God speaks to them because there, there's a, there's a sort of a block there because, because of things that they've seen either in church or, you know, on TV or whatever, it's like, you've got this superstar class of people who hear from God. And then they tell everybody else what they're supposed to do. Honestly, that there's a fair amount of hubris in that, I think. And so what we try to do is train people that, look, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have been born again into his kingdom, you are a deeply loved, fully adopted son and daughter. And it is your spiritual birthright to hear the whisper of the Father's voice. And so that which begs the question, well, how do you how do you know? And so we 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 just uh part of how we do our our network of house churches or simple churches, we call them three-thirds groups because there's three movements to them. The last movement is is we call it looking ahead, where we sit silently. Sometimes there's music in the background, but mostly silently and say, okay, in light of the scripture we read, in light of the conversation we've had. Let's listen and see if we hear the whisper of God. 
And I said, pay attention to the thoughts that come to your mind. And they're like, what do you mean? Well, like, so do you expect that the only time you hear from God is a burning bush? How often has that happened? Right. I, and, and to help people understand, do you realize that many of the thoughts that come to your mind may actually come from God? Like you're sitting there quietly and for no explainable reason, a long lost friend comes to your mind and you wonder, huh, I wonder how he or she is doing. I ought to give him a call. And, and so we have to teach people, have you ever considered that that thought was initiated by the Holy Spirit? And they're like, what? Like, it could. Now, if you have this random thought that my neighbor was, was mean to me, and I have this thought that I'm going to go over there and slash their tires, pretty, pretty certain that's not the Holy Spirit, Right. And so when people begin to realize, sometimes I have these thoughts or these promptings, and we just say, listen, if it walks like Jesus, if it talks like Jesus, if it sounds like, if it's driven by love and compassion and generosity and kindness, press into it. I mean, if it's not God, you're not going to do any harm, right? But it may well be that it's God prompting you to do that. And, uh, and so that's what we do. And so little by little, people are listening and they're starting to pay attention and they're starting to obey those promptings. And, and, and so it's, it's a process, but, um, for a lot of people, this is like a, this is like a revelation. Like if, if what you're saying to me is true, God has been speaking to me all along and I didn't even realize it. And I'm saying there's a, there's a fair amount of truth in that. I think one of the difficulties that adults have in hearing the voice of God, as opposed to children hearing the voice of God, children are spontaneous. Yep, this is it, that was God. Where adults have got too much brain power sometimes in in thinking about it, working it out, is it, and asking the questions. And I was um, talking with a multi-generational group just last last Sunday, I think it was, and we were talking about hearing the voice of God, and we sat uh, and just talking about it. Does it agree with the word of God? In which case, you know, you're on a pretty straight course. And afterwards, the adults all said, we needed to hear this because I think the brain had taken over from the spirit. Yeah. And that blocks it. Whereas if we'd all be more like children in this, we would run a lot more quickly with it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And and that that's I'm glad you added that point that if you if you think you hear something from God and it contradicts his word, it's not God. He's not no. going to contradict his word. So that's that's one of the major guardrails, but I think you're right that we have I think the the phrase analysis paralysis is is probably apropos here. Um and and I think there's a lot of adults who are afraid that if I think God spoke to me and I heard wrong and I act that somehow God is going to be mad at me or disappoint me. I'm like, wait a second, what kind of God do you think we serve? He loves you. He's plenty capable of, if we think that we hear from God and we start down a road and it's not the right path, if our heart is, we're simply trying to, to, to obey you, he's plenty capable of redirecting us. So I think we need to have more confidence in the goodness and the 
love of God. And it's like, it, I sometimes think about, um, I, my son is 38 years old now, but I remember the first time he took a step, you know, you're holding onto the table, he lets go and, and he's kind of wobbling and, and, and you know, he's going to take a step and you know, he's going to fall. Now, do you think that I stood above my son and shook my finger and said, you're the worst walker. You're never going to get this right. You're a f no, no. I'm on the phone calling the White House, the president of the United States saying, my son took a step. He's awesome. If that's how I react as an earthly dad, how do you think our heavenly father responds when his children attempting to be, be obedient, even if we're goofing up? I think he's up there going, go. And when we fall down, he'll pick us up, dust us off, and say, keep going. Sorry, talk, I, I think I kicked into preacher mode there. But. No, it's good. <laughs> we talk about practicing the gifts of the Spirit, and people say that. And I, I often say, wait a minute, it's this practice. Just practice. Yeah. It's okay. Let's all practice and get rid of the sphere. Um, by the way, as we carry on, I was meant to ask this at the beginning. People want to find out more about you, what you're doing. Where can they do that? Find out about me? Yeah, like the website. Well, yeah. So I would say um, the Big Life website uh, is, uh, I mean, that's how they can find out about Big Life. And if okay. they contact Big Life, they they, they can find me. But okay. yeah, the website, it's, it's, the website is so simple that it tricks people. It's big dot life that's the website and then i think it's okay. big dot life dot com or big dot life dot org or something no it's just big dot life okay and i'll put that link in the description so it's there yeah. ready for people to check out um talking about what you were saying earlier about the heart um one of the things that we talk about uh in our conferences is that god constantly says write these commands that i give you today on your heart and then pass them on to the next generation. And sometimes when right. we think about a command, we might think of head knowledge. Uh, right. And when you think of head knowledge, you know, you might beat the next generation with the information, uh, like a teacher or something. But he says, no, put these things, these commands that I've given you today, write them on your heart. And when you write things on your heart, it then becomes passion. And when it becomes passion, you can't help but tell the next generation or tell other people around you. Um, now, our particular focus uh in this part uh and when it comes to discipleship is saying to people that biblically discipleship was generational so everyone discipled someone of of the next generation or someone that would live longer than them and helping churches to look at that how we can because uh, what we see is that discipleship has become a peer thing today so we kind of disciple people of the same age group and helping them to look at how can we become more generational, but also helping to empower parents to be the primary disciples of their kids. Um, as you do your uh, the discipleship making movement stuff around the world and with Big Life, uh, what do you see in terms of discipleship, uh, the generational aspect of that and with parents discipling their kids? That's a great question. What my 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 first thought is: What do we see? Not enough of what you just described. Uh, not enough intergenerational grandparents, parents, children, um, and so we're chipping away at it. 
we're, we're trying to put simple multiplying tools into the hands of multiple generations so that people my age who would be the grandparents, um, they can pass these tools on to their children and to their children's children and so forth. Um, yeah, my, my, my guess is your, your question actually is raising questions in my own mind. Are, are we, am I, sufficiently focused not and i don't want to eliminate peer-to-peer no 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 right that this whole idea of from generation to generation because we know that we're only one generation away from extinction in terms of faith but uh but that's certainly our heart is to is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples so that you do get that generational multiplication i mean if you if you are just hanging in this zone a minute, if you're making disciples who make disciples who make disciples and it's totally on a peer level, it will abort anyway. That's right. When this generation died, the next generation did not know. Judges 2.10. 210. So, multi- right. so multiplication disciples who make disciples who make disciples still has the potential to die unless it goes generationally. So yeah. it's, and again, like you, it's not wrong. We just like to point out that as far as we can see, every single model of discipleship in the Bible was somebody discipling someone who would live longer than them. And yeah. when we say this on the platform, you can see everybody going through their mm. page. I'll find trying to, I'll find one that isn't, <laughs> nobody's brought us one yet. Everybody. So our primary model has been overtaken by something that isn't wrong, but it's it's almost it's it's um it should be the addition to it should be the addition to, to generational. Well, even if somebody did find that uh, that one exception, it doesn't deny the overall pattern, no. right? That it is from one generation to the next, and uh, so no, that's really important. I mean, I've got uh, two adult children and um, and grandchildren, and if that does not get passed on, um, you're right that text from Judges two ten comes directly into play. And then um, is it uh, it's Deuteronomy six that talks yeah. about um, passing on. God's precepts and principles as you rise up and as you lay down, as you're walking along the way, that's all intergenerational stuff. Yeah. I have a, I have a grandson who lives uh, three minutes from me by car. And my wife and I are getting ready to spend the winters in Southern California. It's a long story as to how that came about, but we're going to be, I'm going to be the chaplain in a large RV park and people from half of the United States come through this park, 25 of the 50 states. So I have an opportunity, unlimited opportunity for both evangelism, because a lot of those people don't know Jesus. But also what I'm praying is that I can find those persons of peace, Luke 10, persons of peace, that I can train up, because we're just borrowing this right out of Jesus' playbook on disciple making, pour deeply into a few, right? Um, and, and model, assist, watch, right. And, and, and empower them so that they can go home. The, most of the people in the park are, are elderly. And, uh, my challenge to them is to take these very simple tools, place them in the hands of their children and challenge them immediately, not only to, to be a disciple, but to be a, a, a disciple who makes disciples to their grandchildren and, you know, so that we get that generational multiplication. 
Yeah, that's really good. And when we we talk to the older generation um, and talk to, to say, you, we still need you. Uh, very often we will have older people come to us after conferences and they will say, thank you for what you said. I thought I was literally just here waiting to die. The church has no use for me anymore. I'm just, you know, someone that stands around, says hi to people, greet them when they come in, but there's no other use for me anymore. And uh, we say to them, no, we need to restore the prayer of David, where he said to God, even now when I'm old and gray, do not let me die until I've told the next generation. And this prayer has vanished from the church. And we need yeah. to restore that prayer yeah. and say yeah, to older beautiful. people, we still need you. You restore that prayer of David. Do not let me die until I've done my part in terms of passing on to the next generation. And so I love that you've got that opportunity of connecting to the older generation yeah. and for, for older people that are losing that sense of having a purpose for their lives anymore, you can help to restore that in them. So I, I have a theory that I want you guys to tell me if you think I'm on the right track, because the, the conventional wisdom is that older people, they're stuck in their ways. They're, 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 they're not going to be interested in being disciple to become disciple makers. But here's my hypothesis, my theory. I believe that in every church, you know, at least in the Western church, where they gather together, there, there is a remnant. It might only be a handful. And I'm thinking about people, they're in their 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. And they're good, solid church people. They love Jesus. They they served in the nursery. They were part of it all. They, they've given generously, but they live with a quiet sadness, a kind of unspoken sadness, because when they were younger, they dreamed of being like, maybe I could be a missionary. Maybe I could take the gospel to people that don't know anything about the love of Jesus. But, you know, uh, the years clicked by, they got married, had kids, ran a business, whatever, and now they're older. And they would hear stories of missionaries coming to their churches and telling these stories, or they would read these stories in the book of Acts, and their heart would beat really fast. And they'd go, oh, I so wish I could have gotten some skin in the game. So I so wish that God could use somebody like me on, on this great adventure. But apparently it's for somebody else. And so they live, they, they love God and they love the church, but there's this quiet ache in their heart. And so my theory is that as I began, as I begin to share with them, you can still be a missionary to the people you already know and love, who already know and love you. I can, we can put some simple tools in your hand that will allow you to go on this great adventure of following Jesus. I believe, now I'm not naive enough to think that everybody's going to stand up and say, hallelujah, train me. But my theory is there will be a few. You think I'm right or wrong? Right. I am going to speak as being one of the older people, okay? So maybe- You're stuck in your ways. I can, I can perhaps speak with a bit of authority on this. <laughs> First of all, I think you're totally underestimating that generation, right? I think, I think, I think multiple things. I mean, I am go, go, go. I'm in a different nation most months. I mean, I'm like, you're not going to stop me. I have a vision. 
I know what I'm called to, I know where I'm going, and I know what I'm going to do, and there ain't nobody on the face of the earth that's going to stop me doing that. So, you know, I have a vision, I I have a passion. I think part of the key to it is with the younger generation. You think of, of Naomi and Ruth. Why would, you know, Naomi said, oh, I'm going back. And Ruth says, I'll come with you. And she says, no, no, no. Why would you want to go with me? Her self-value, her, her life was decimated. She had nowhere to go. You just stay there, Ruth. I'm going back. And Ruth said, no, where you're going, I'm going. Don't ask me to leave you. I'm with you. Why? Was it that Naomi had forgotten who she was? She didn't know what she had to offer. And it took Ruth to see in her something that she had forgotten she was and said, and you know what? I'm coming with you. Now, supposing a younger generation began to see in the older generation who they really were, started to dream on that and say to them, we see who you are. We want who you are. We we recognize who you are and we want to come with you. Where do you want to go? Or will you come with us? And I think that generational disconnection is part of the reason, not the whole reason, part of the reason. You put them all together and they're going to build this pit where all they think they can do is knit or something like that because they've got no passion and inspiration that comes from outside. Um, And so um, I will send you a video afterwards. Maybe you can put the link to it, Andrew. What happens when these generations connect? And, you know, we, we talk about Mordecai and Esther. I mean, Mordecai had to put his life on the line before he could challenge Esther. And we say to the older people, the younger generation need you still to lead the way, to put your life on the line and show them where to go. Um, I think the whole disconnection comes in, like, take marriage counselling. I don't see many places that will find an elderly couple of their 70s, 80s who faithfully been married, put them in charge of the marriage counselling. Nope not happening. So I yeah. think the whole devaluing of the older generation, unless they're terribly self-motivated, and I don't mean like me, meaning I don't need anybody to, to tell me I'm going to go anyway, but when they've been beaten up and devalued and they think that they're nothing, then any surprising they're not going to go. One mm-hmm. last thing, and you can tell I feel a bit passionately about this, can't you? <laughs> One last thing is you say that they – thought about going when they were younger. And again, I think there's a big slip up here that we've tried to overcome. We will start, we start training church planters at the age of six or seven. I mean, seriously, it's strategic, ongoing. They know how to go and survey out. They know how to run small groups and all the rest of it in a multi-generational setting. But what happens is the church waits until they're 18, 19, 20, something like that. Now we'll train you, then you can go. Why do they have to wait till they're 18, 19, 20 and be trained? And so we try and track with them from childhood through teenage years. uh, And the result is that they can go way sooner, not have all this um, By the know, time they're 18, 19, 20, yeah, we can just send Yeah, they're ready them. to go, but we wait until they've got married and got everything else. Do you want to tell the story about Brazil and the mountain? 
so anyway, I think that that is the one reason why we lose them in that gap, and then they end up when they're older because we see that happening, don't we? Yeah, we see it. We see it a lot. Even missionaries that we talk to, mm. uh, or people that uh, we talk to missionaries, and we say, "When did you first have your calling?" As children, uh, but we will also talk to people that never went, and that, that will come to us and say, "You know, I I felt called to the mission field, but I never went." And we say, "When did you feel that calling?" And they would say as a child, but then yeah. other things came along, but there was no one to connect to that calling to help equip them and train them up and, and send them out. Um, but yeah, like, like um, you were saying about the uh, mm. in Brazil, uh, we spoke at a church and then we left and the the leaders of that network, they know us very well. Uh, and so the wife decided I'm going to go in after the Kirks have been to town. And she went to meet with the young people and said, look, I know the Kirks have been here. I know the kind of challenge that they may have given you. And I want to give you the opportunity now to actually go and do something. And they said, there's this mountain in Brazil. I don't know what region, um, but for chunks of the year, it's inaccessible to older people from landslides and things like that. They said, but you young people, you can go. And there's no uh christian representation on that mountain so who will go and plant a small group up there plant a cell group and says so 18 year old kid said yeah i want to go and uh, him and i think three others ended up going they planted a cell group on the mountain um they multiplied it grew it multiplied it into two i think then into three and then that leader went back to him and said this is great you're doing really well now there's the mountain next door so we want you to now plant a cell group into the next mountain. and uh, But this is just an example of a young person who'd been trained up and uh, was ready to go at 18 years old. You don't have to wait until they get yeah. older to, to get I them mean, out there. And then we've got a youngster who's going off to one of the most dangerous places on the face of this planet when everybody else was saying they couldn't, and we said you can. So anyway... There's our takeover of your podcast, but you asked a question and so you pressed our buttons no, no. and got an answer. So, so I was going on a very, very conservative trajectory, but I believe that you're right. Uh, there's more than a few. And, and for people who, uh, you know, maybe um, they've just sort of been um, neglected for so long, it hasn't, hasn't even occurred to them that they could they could make a, a significant kingdom difference. So, so we're, we're on the same page there. Many years ago on my first trip, uh, not my first trip abroad, but my first trip where I could see a decentralized disciple making movement. I met a man, I don't know how old he was, probably mid forties. He was a professional snake charmer. So he was the guy that I don't know how you, I, first of all, to get good at anything, you, it takes practice, right? Well, this guy caught deadly king cobra snakes, and then he had to defang them. Well, if you make one mistake and you get bit, I think you pretty much go straight to Jesus. Or you're straight somewhere. But the guy was still alive, so um, he couldn't read or write. He had no education, and he had 16 of these simple groups, uh, house churches or whatever you want to call them. And my brain exploded. I'm like, what? And then the next day, I met an 18-year-old from Nepal, and he had been discipled when he was younger. And now, 
when I tell you that he had 35 simple churches underneath him, he did not plant all of them. He he started a few, discipled a few, and it began to multiply. He was 18 years old. And that was in, in 2010 or 11. I met a guy named Ani. Ani has a long, uh, he comes from a Muslim background, but he's from West Bengal, India. Nobody will ever know Ani's name on this earth. The last I heard, Ani had about 7,000 groups that would trace their spiritual lineage back. And then um, I was trained in 2014 by, um, if not the greatest disciple maker alive today, certainly one of them. And again, very few people know the name of Curtis Sargent. But Curtis started uh, many of the disciple making movements around the world, including Ying Kai from China. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of what brought me to where I'm at today is to see what happens when you engage people of all ages, all backgrounds, educated, uneducated, who love Jesus, God's law, to your point, Andrew, is so true that when this law is written in your heart, your heart is full of love and passion. And we can do trainings all over the world, but if you don't, if his law is not written on your heart, it's just, it's just one more thing. But when your heart is ablaze with the love of Jesus, and then we can give you simple ways to pass on the faith towards generational multiplication, it's, there's no telling what God can do with one person. Yeah. So can I ask, are we getting near the end? Yeah. But can I ask you something as we draw near the end? You said at the beginning, like the book of Acts, right? Church is like the book of Acts. I'm going back to that question of what does it look like? Can you give us some identifying marks of the the disciple-making movement, the small group movement of which we're a part? Um, We say it's like the book of Acts because, because, because. Can you tell us what that might look like? I would say because um, we gather together in simple ways, so it's, it doesn't require buildings um, or, you know, like church edifices and so forth, because we live out in, in tangible ways the one another passages that you read about in the book of Acts and the Gospels, love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, and so on and so forth. It's like the book of Acts because the spiritual gifts are in full display. We need all of the gifts, and, and it's not isolated to a few people who have the gifts of leadership or whatever. Um, it's like uh, the book of Acts because it really is um, it, like the third member of the Trinity is not uh, put on the shelf. It's the Father, the Son, and I once preached a sermon. I'm surprised I didn't get fired. I called it the Father, the Son, and what's his name? And I, and I, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I did that to make a point, right? Uh, but but I think we're like the Book of Acts because the Holy Spirit is front and center. Um, I, I think it's like the Book of Acts because we we. Um, we there's a there's a similar kind of generosity. We do life together in community. It's not isolated to an hour or two a week. Um, I'm probably missing several others, but that's what. Comes I'm sorry, up. but I've totally lost the plot here. That might be the title of the episode. <laughs> the father started. What's his, his name? name? <laughs> <laughs> just completely. 
Okay. <laughs> Can you throw that in at the end when you're speaking, not not halfway through? Because you sorry just, about that. <laughs> Do carry on. <laughs> That's good. No, that was really good. That was really good. It will always be like that to me now. <laughs> That's that's going to be everyone's takeaway for yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> right, Nick. We're back with you. Yes, do carry on. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where to go from there, but um, <laughs> but I, but I think if you if you read the book of Acts and you see it's and I think it's also like the books of, of Acts because there's an apostolic nature to it. You you don't you you, you keep moving. Where where are there areas of darkness? And I think about where I live in the northern part of Michigan. I live Traverse City is a resort town. It's a fruit bearing region. It's stunningly beautiful. There's a there's a community college here and arts and restaurants and so forth. But when you get not too far from Traverse City, you get into very rural areas, and there is enormous darkness. So you take these little villages, these little towns where once upon a time, one town had a Catholic church and a, and a Methodist church. And 30 miles down the road, there's a Baptist church and a whatever church. Most of those towns, those churches, if they're still in existence, they have not seen a person come to faith in Jesus in decades. They've not had a baptism in decades. And so if you do a Google Earth and you look down, there are large areas, not too far from where I live, that are enveloped in darkness. And so in a disciple-making movement, there is that apostolic move. We don't run away from the enemy. We, we want to become dangerous to the enemy. We like to think of ourselves as the tip of the spear. Uh, because God has not given us a spirit of fear but of love, power, and of a sound mind. So um, in obedience to King Jesus, away we go. And we try to identify where in our region, as well as the world as a whole, is the kingdom underrepresented or maybe not represented at all, and who will go. And so we try to live in obedience to what Jesus modeled or called his, his disciples, the 72 in Luke 10, go in groups of two and go into these villages. Sometimes the villages, it really is a village, but it, the village could be your local high school. Um, I, I can promise you that the average high school in America, I would venture to say well over 90% of those students have never heard the gospel. I mean, get rid of all the clutter and get right to the heart of the most beautiful, epic love story humanity has ever heard. And it happens to be true, the gospel. The vast majority of people under the age of, say, 25 have probably never heard the gospel. And so much like the book, the book of Acts, off we go. Yeah. Nick, I think that's a great place to stop. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for sharing some of your journey and I think you've given uh, a lot for people to to go away and think about, um, including us. Um, so thank you. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. Glad to, glad to be with you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. Remember, if it inspired you, share it with others so we can see more people engaged in this community.